Hello, I'm Kerry Eustace and you're listening to Careers Talk. Coming up this week, we ask what next for social workers. High profile scandals and the recent Dispatches documentary have painted a depressing picture of working in social care. We talk about the problems of recruitment and retention and some of the upsides of the sector with Kim Bromley-Derry, who's Executive Director of Children and Young People Services at the London Borough of Newham. Plus, tighten your commuter belt and prepare yourself for a double-decker-sized journey. Ali White has some tips on how to be an extreme commuter. Oh, and don't forget Julian's tip has had a revamp. Today, our tipster becomes Dear Julian. But we'll open the show with some news and here to review this week's hottest headlines is fierce hack Harriet Minter and reporting ace Ali White. Harriet, as a seasoned temp, what are your thoughts on the story about rising recruitment for these workers? Well, this is a story that came from the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. And they're saying that this month has shown a 9% increase in temporary jobs available from last month. And they're saying it's because, I really like this, they're saying there's a feeling that a Conservative government is likely to be best for future job creation. I suspect it's possibly more likely because there's been a headcount freeze, but an easy way of getting more people in without actually upping your headcount, if you're in HR, this is the top tip, is to recruit temporary staff. Mm. Now, you called me a seasoned temp. I've actually temped for over 40 companies. That's my little claim to fame. (laughs) In my, I think it was sort of five years of temping in between studying and things like that. I really like temping. It was great fun. If you don't have... A full-time job or if you're studying and you want to do something in your holidays or if you want to travel, if you temp for a bit, you can get great experience in a variety of companies and you can go off and you get paid pretty well, really, for whatever the role is. I think it's a fun job and I, I think it's great that there are going to be more roles out there because if you're not employed and you're trying to get a permanent job, it is still tough. And this way you can get some more experience on your CV. Mm, I, I was just thinking I hope this sort of is maintained because next year from April, temporary workers are going to get new rights. If you've been in a role for 12 weeks, you get the same as full-time staff. Well, that's really great. In terms of, you know, you employment get benefits. Holiday and, yeah. yeah. So I wonder whether next year we'll be having the same sort of headlines. Probably not. Probably not when they have to pay you when you're not in the office. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I've picked something out, some figures about the graduate recruitment market, which is obviously a big story at the moment. And it's the summer of sort of survey, grad survey time. And I've picked out something from Grad Futures and they found that nine out of 10 graduates have a career path in mind, which I found was quite surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, one in five want to go into marketing. Wow. And they all and the headline of the story is uh, that graduates are flooding already overcrowded markets. Um, hence the one in five want to go into marketing. I just thought this was interesting because oh, we know that there's a lot of oversubscribed industries such as yeah. journalism. You know, there's that, mm-hmm. that fact from journalism.co.uk recently that there are more journalism graduates coming out of study this summer than there are in jobs in the entire media. Within law, certainly there are more graduates in law each year than there are jobs. And a few years ago, there were more graduating barristers or wannabe barristers three times the number graduated the course you need to do than there were jobs available mm. which is just you know terrifying how do you yeah. get a job in that well I, in terms of marketing I spoke to Guardian Jobs to ask about sort of the recruitment situation and although marketing budgets were cut in the, the height of the recession there is some recovery although it's not sort of pre-downturn levels so there are some jobs out there for people who are looking um, and if you're one of those one in five the I spoke to Mark Stewart who's head of research at the Chartered Institute of Marketing and he had a few tips for people um you know marketing is a great industry it's got quite a creative and glamorous image but you also need to have like quite serious business skills you need to understand spreadsheets you need to be quite numerate 
and be able to measure the impact of your campaign. So if you're going in with that, you're going to stand out. Marketing companies that are taking on graduates often say they know the what, but not the how. So if you want to stand out, you know, try and get a bit of that practical experience, work shadow, or and also they said think about taking a professional qualification and think about your continued professional development. So that's quite some quite good advice. Um, I will say about this research though, it's not particularly robust. There's only about three hundred people surveyed. Um, but if you're looking for some more uh, solid graduate advice for a perspective of the market, High Flyers released some really interesting research about the graduate market recently. So I'll put a link on the site. And it was stuff like, I think it's like one in six said they wouldn't have gone to university if they've known how yeah. bad the market was at the moment. So we'll put that up for everybody to have a look at. Yeah, that was quite a comprehensive survey of a lot of final students, was 16,000, yeah. So that, you know, really sort of seems to indicate that people are a bit worried about the state of the market at the moment, mm. which does bring me on to an interesting story I saw about um, if you've got economic woes, the last thing you're probably going to think about is hitting the dance floor. But apparently... Um, John Hayes, who's the skills minister, said stuff like dancing or doing flower arranging courses can actually really give you a bit of a boost if you're on that kind of path to looking for a job. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if this was a podcast, really? I think everyone would see me and Kate just rolling our eyes at that. That's yeah. Ridiculous. He quoted the example of an unemployed 56-year-old man who took dance classes in his spare time for a year and as a result gained the confidence to apply for jobs. <laughs> just moves so well. <laughs> but I think the point is amazing is adult education really is very important to people's physical and mental health and kind of help build tight communities and give people that kind of encouragement and perhaps you know he's got a point if you've been out of the job market for a little while you've sort of put yourself towards a task and I think they're saying the new administration is going to look towards um, you know how this is going to pan out because in the past there have been 1.4 million adult education classes cut back including many of the ones they see as non-essential such as flower arranging and dance so I think he's sort of made a bit of a commitment commitment to looking at where we can address these gaps in the adult education market and perhaps get people dancing to career success. I just don't think it's a very well-worded statement. I think if somebody's been out of work for six months a year, the last mm. thing they need is somebody saying, well, if you went to dance classes, yeah. or if you knew that roses look better when you put them with lilies, you'll have a job. I think it would be, yeah. it would be much better to, he should really be promoting adult education classes because yeah. there are some amazing ones around. But it would be much better to say, go to this adult education class and learn a skill which you can then use to be employed. I suppose yeah, you yeah. could use flower arranging for florist. I take it back. He's right and wrong. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't enjoy the dance because I'm <laughs> terrible. I'm more frustrated <laughs> than ever before. Maybe there's a massive <laughs> skills gap in um, in floristry. Maybe that we're just not aware of that. We should look into it. <laughs> Explore that. For those that sidestep flower arranging and dance classes, perhaps you took a filler job instead to get you through the recession. If you're wondering about the impact this could have on your job prospects, you're not alone. In our revamped feature, Dear Julian, our agony uncle has some wise words for you. Hello, this is Julian and Lee back again and I'm very excited because I'm starting my new feature this week which is called Dear Julian. This is where I'm going to answer your career queries and I have to say I've had a, a bulging post-sack, I don't know, a bulging inbox is maybe what you call it these days. Um, and I decided to start off with a letter uh, from Economic War. 
Last year, like many others, I was made redundant. It took me more than two months to get another job, and it was one that paid a lot less. I knew it would be taking a step down, but it was a job nonetheless. I've been here for eight months now and are getting frustrated with various things, not least of all my job having very little responsibility and being unable to fully use my previous experience. At times I feel as if I have more experience than my managers, but of course I cannot show this or express these views as it would be detrimental to my current post. I'm currently looking for a new job and have a few good leads, but I'm concerned I'll struggle to get back to the level of job I would have been in had I not been made redundant. Is this current role harming my job prospects? So thanks for that letter, Economic War. Uh, I fully sympathise with you. It's a situation that affects more and more people these days as the economy has taken a downturn and all companies have cut back. One out of every five of my friends have been made redundant in the last two years. So you're not alone. Uh, And I fully sympathise with the frustration of having had a position and now having to feel as if you're taking two steps back. However, you absolutely did the right thing by getting straight back into another job, regardless of whether or not it was sort of on a par with what you're doing before. The important thing is always to keep your hand in the game. And even though it might feel frustrating, you're still going to be much further ahead than had you just sat back and uh, waited for a more senior job to come along. You've only been in the job for eight months now, which unfortunately I don't think is quite enough time really for your bosses to have been able to create a new post that could perhaps match your ambition. I think it's certainly important that you make your senior staff aware of your ambitions and the things that you would like to do. I would be inclined to make a game plan, make a mission statement, if you like, for what I would want to achieve in the next 12 months. I would then sort of build a skeleton plan of how I was going to achieve those goals. So, for example, in four months' time, I want my boss to be fully aware of my ambitions. In six months' time, I want to have addressed my current situation by speaking to my boss and telling them that I would, you know, I'm looking for a promotion. So it kind of allows you to have some ownerships and management, if you like, over your own career. I think your problem at the moment is that you're feeling, well, understandably very battered down by the experience you've had of work in the last couple of years, but also slightly out of control because you've had to take a step backwards. And that is a very frustrating situation. Of course, as well as, you know, sitting alongside that advice of what you can sort of do today, tomorrow, the day after to sort of make your work life more bearable. I absolutely think you're doing the right thing looking for a new job. The brilliant thing is I'm seeing this. I'm sure lots of other industries are seeing this. There are green shoots of opportunity opening up all over the place. The best thing you can do now is to make sure that you're in pole position. So should an opportunity come along, you're the first person anyone thinks of. So absolutely, this is applying for jobs. But it's also about becoming known within your industry. So networking, communicating with other departments, rival companies, as well as also thinking about what else your skills could be used for and thinking about uh, alternative career plans. I've been inclined to sort of on spec send my CV or a covering letter or an email out to the places where I wanted to work or the companies that I thought you know might have got ambitious good things going on make sure that your letter is in a pile of CVs or or names if you like when they do start to recruit so economic war this would be my advice to you give yourself a break just accept that this is the way the world is at the moment and that it's not you being a failure that has led to this frustration. My second piece of advice would be take control of the situation. Make a game plan. So you decide what your future is going to be and set about it tomorrow. And my final piece of advice 
is really just to carry on as you're doing, keep applying for jobs, keep a positive frame of mind. Because as I said, there are green shoots out there, there's exciting stuff happening. Make sure you're the person that gets a job and not someone else. That was creative director at Bauer, Julian Lindley. Obviously, dear Julian would be nothing without you, dear listener. So if you're aching for promotion and want some advice on how to earn it, have lost confidence following redundancy, want some encouragement for pushing through a new idea in your office or need advice on changing roles, Julian can help. Post your workplace woes and burning questions in the comments section below or over in the careers forum and Julian will address them in the podcast. And for those aching to meet our careers guru in the flesh, Julian will be speaking at the Media Moves Guardian session at the Guardian London Graduate Fair from the Careers Group this week, June 23rd to 24th at the Business Design Centre in London. We'll also be there, so keep an eye out and do say hello. Um, I'll be the girl with the microphone. Time for a quick Q&A review now. So we had an amazing industry-leading panel for working in digital advertising. And Ali, uh, you're going to share some highlights, aren't you? I am indeed. Okay, first up, um, rounded skill sets. And we hear this a lot, I think, in the careers spectrum is, you know, get loads of skills under your belt. But this was a particular um, answer to a panellist who said they want to work in advertising, but should they be tailoring their career towards traditional advertising or digital advertising? Or should they apply to agencies that do both? And so one of the panellists said it might be useful not to differentiate so strongly between online and offline because, you know, it's important to have the ability to have skills in both, really, kind of like a rounded skill set. Because the most valuable skills are transferable as well. So if you can have a can-do attitude combined with practical knowledge of the industry on and offline and the ability to client-face, you'll be a valuable asset regardless. So I thought that was really interesting. And another panellist chipped in to say um, they've stopped, actually stopped hiring digital people. They are looking at people who can do digital. So it does seem like they are really looking for these kind of roles where people can do everything. And someone said, be digital savvy, be proactive on your digital space. You know, um, we talked last week about how being having a really good, interesting social media idea could even land you a job. And they're kind of saying the same thing, really. Make a brand of yourself, like whether it's Facebook, Twitter, or even something you've put on YouTube, be the brand. And then if employers think you're interesting, they'll pick up on you. Thirdly, I thought getting a creative role, there's some really good advice from a panellist who said, um, approach it the same way you would a client's business problem. Think about the mountains of applications that get sent to employers and how are you going to stand out among them? You know, not just do what everyone else is doing. So he said, focus on, say, five companies and get to know the people you want to apply for and, you know, see what they're doing. Have a actual have a point of view on what they're doing on at the success of their campaigns. And then you can really kind of approach them from a position of knowledge. And, you know, you might find you get the job that way. Thanks for that, Ali. Now, we're joined in the studio by Kim Bromley-Derry, Executive Director of Children and Young People's Services at the London Borough of Newham. He's been President of the Association of Directors of Children's Services and chairs the National Family Intervention Strategy Group. He began his career as a residential social worker in a children's home, so he's perfectly placed to give us some insights into the profession and the challenges facing it. Hello, Kim. Hello there. Thanks for joining us today. Start us off, can you tell us a bit about your current role and how you got into it? It's quite a long title, but uh, (laughs) basically what it means, I'm uh, accountable for most of the activities relating to children in the London Borough of Newham. So it would include having an accountability for what goes on in schools, social work, youth work, uh, 
mental health services for children. So a whole range of, of different uh, services that, uh, that we provide and other agencies provide. So looking after the whole sector within that borough, really? That's right, yes. And right. um, last year you were president of the, let me get this right, Association of Directors of Children's Services, is that correct? That's right, yes. You effectively become the public voice for all the directors uh, across the country, uh, certainly England. Uh, it's an English uh, association rather than UK. You said that um, you thought it should be a fly-on-the-wall documentary for social services. Why was that? What were you hoping to show from it? Well, I think one of the problems with social work and social care is that, unlike professions like teaching, pretty much everyone can relate to what a teacher does because they've probably been in a school and they've been taught by a teacher. Actually, not that many people have a social worker. So therefore, for the broader public... Actually understanding what a social worker does, how they do it, what they're thinking and how they go about their business is really quite difficult to get a handle on. So, you know, more open we can be to actually let cameras in and let documentaries into to that world, the better, because I think then there'll be a greater understanding about what the role is, what the task is and actually how difficult or easy it is. And the other thing I wanted to ask about was obviously the recent Dispatches documentary which I'm sure you've seen, but for those who didn't, was an undercover documentary into children's social services in um, Surrey councils. And it painted a pretty grim picture of the situation there, I think. They were filling in forms left, right and centre. Um, the manager at one point said that it didn't matter if a child died on your watch so long as the case was closed, and that was OK. Um, we've had quite a few reactions to it on our site. We had people defending it and saying it really had painted a very old picture of the social care system and then others saying well if you're on the other side of it that's very much how the experience feels what did you think of the documentary do you think it was an accurate description do you think it was just a particularly bad department my first feelings when I when I watched it were being sort of frustrated and disappointed really because oh. it felt as though uh, it was depicting something that probably had been the case many many years ago in terms of how how organisations operated and how social work operated. And then I reflected on it and thought about, well, certainly it was some time ago, so maybe things have changed. And certainly I know Surrey have come out and said things have changed since that. But also I thought it was a good opportunity to actually say, so what is it really like to be a social worker and what does go on and how do the systems work? So I think on the back of it, we can then have a, a debate about the operations of a social services, social work department. Did you think it highlighted any particular challenges that face social workers? Well, I think the th three things I'd probably highlight were, one, the issue of morale. Certainly that depicted an, an environment where morale was still very, very low. Uh, and I think it's still very mixed, you know, and I think in some parts of the profession it is still very, very low. In others it's beginning to move on uh, from that place. I think the second thing is systems and processes. Our workers are completely tied down with the, the, the amount of uh, processing bureaucracy that they're working with and um, I think that must add to the, their frustration and, and the low morale. And I think the third thing is, is just the sheer complexity of what they do and the critical decision making that they have to make. And I don't think it's always appreciated that actually some of these decisions that they're making are life critical for people in terms of their futures and actually um, they can be quite painful decisions as well and I think that uh, it started to show some of that obviously there were concerns about some of the practice but sorry assure us that it's moved on from that place now. 
something that came across quite strongly for me was how busy everybody felt, how overworked they felt. And I read a really interesting piece this week in Society Guardian in light of sort of high profile cases such as Baby P that people are sort of overworking themselves because they're feeling that they're at risk of doing the same thing and they don't want to. I mean, how do you feel about that? Is that a real risk for social workers? Is it something that's playing on their mind? And what can sort of be done to help them with their workloads in that way? Yeah, I think um, since Baby Peter there is a general anxiety across the whole sector. I think it, uh, social workers experience it, their managers experience it, I assume directors of children's services experience it as well, that actually people can't afford to get it wrong again and the public are not prepared for us to get it wrong again as well. And I think that that means that people are feeling the pressure at the same time as the workload increasing. I was on the Social Work Task Force and we debated long and hard about caseloads and um, I think the the conclusion we came from is is that because there are so many different types of social work doing so many different types of things where it's adults, children, mental health, older people, that actually you couldn't come up with a magic number but every team would had to have a system to protect their staff from overwork. So for a particular team or a particular service you needed to come up with a mechanism that said well that's too much work whereas this is enough and I think the other thing that is really complex about it, it changes on a daily basis. So if a a social worker has a case that suddenly goes to court and they have to spend the next two weeks in court, uh, what's happening with the other 15 cases or the other 10 cases, which then creates pressure on them because actually they really do care what's happening on those 15 cases, but they're in court for the next two weeks. There isn't an answer at the moment, but I think that absolutely it's an accountability of managers to have a system in their own teams and within their own services. Do you think there's enough training for social workers, particularly once they've kind of, I know it's our profession, so you have to degree in it, but once they've qualified, do you think there's enough ongoing professional development to kind of help them feel a bit more secure in their role and with what they're doing? I think there's two things. One, does the initial degree prepare them to be a social worker? That's the first issue. And I think there's a lot of debate about it gives them a technical grounding. It doesn't necessarily prepare them for the actual experience. And it's a bit like driving a car, you know, the the old adage where you actually really only start learning once you've passed your test and you get out there on your own. And I think there are elements of that in social work. The only real two ways of dealing with that is is around good quality supervision by a manager who talks you through cases and, and helps you develop your practice and continuous professional development. I think that uh, we've concentrated a bit too much on the academic components of continuous professional development rather than the practice development components of continuous professional development. And I think that that's the balance that's starting to shift. And certainly um, the uh, year in practice after the degree is absolutely, I think, a really uh, good step forward because it gives you the opportunity to actually do the practice bit whilst you're still training and getting input from university or from uh, training in the local authority, but then to have a career pathway, which has to include development. And um, I don't think social work's ever had that before, in, not in the same way as most other professions have had. So I think that, I mean, in a sense, the people who will benefit from that are the people who are starting their degree now. So what we've got to do is, is what about all those that we've, who are currently social workers and those that have recently completed? And, and I think local authorities are focusing quite a lot of their energy on the people we've already got, obviously we've got a little bit of time for those people who are in their first year of their degree course to get it right for when they complete their degree. And do you think it's easy to recruit more people into the profession at the moment or is uh, has the rather bleak media picture dulled that down a bit? It's interesting because we, we've certainly had a lot more interest 
in people becoming social workers, converting them into real social workers once they've expressed an interest. An interest is going to be, you know, it's early days yet because obviously that that work's only been going on for for a year or two. I think our biggest challenge is keeping hold of the ones we've got and making sure that once you've got people, they stay. And we're certainly losing too many people. They're not staying long enough. And they're changing jobs too quickly to create a stable workforce at the moment. What do you think is the one thing that can be done to try and improve your retention? What can, well, what, what can managers take away from the session and say, right, I'm going to try and put that into practice in my department? Most people come into the profession and probably other professions like teaching and youth work because they want to make a difference. And they don't want to spend all their time sitting at a desk and they don't want to spend all their time just talking uh, and feeling that they're under the cosh constantly. So what we've got to try and do is enable them to make a difference so that when they go home in the evening they say, do you know, I've had a really fantastic day, I've done this, this and this with the family, I have actually feel like I've made a difference. And I think sometimes uh, we, we don't take stocks, take a step back and say to our workers, you know, so what have you done over the last month? How many lives have you turned around? How many lives have you changed? As a sort of employer, we don't do it enough. And as a profession, we don't do it enough. The profession needs to take some responsibility for doing some of that. Employers need to take some responsibility for doing that. And direct line managers need to take some responsibility for doing that. You've obviously been in the profession now for quite a few years. So you've clearly seen the good sides of it as well. Can we paint a better picture for people listening to you, we say, what, what are the good things about social work? Well, I think that, you know, if I think back to when I first started out, it is still still the most rewarding job I've ever had. And it is also still the job that was the most frustrating job I ever had as well. Um, the reason for that was because, one, I was enthusiastic about working with children and families. I used to spend most of my time with families and children. Yeah. I was able to, you know, whether it was a, a, a family where there was a risk of their child being taken into care as it was in those days, sitting down with them and talking about the behaviours that they would need to change or the young person would need to change to stop that happening and then going back on a regular basis to monitor it, giving them advice on how to do it, creating coping strategies. But most of that was done directly face-to-face with them yeah. and we're not doing enough of that now. Workers aren't giving the, being given the opportunity to do that. And the other thing that was the most satisfying was actually people thanked you. You know, actually people said, you did a really good job there, Kim. You know, you did make that difference. Yeah. And People are so busy, people are so focused on systems, processes, targets, management, no resources, that actually we don't say, you did a really good job there. Um, Now that's one side of it. Obviously we need to remunerate people properly, we need to make sure that they've got careers, and certainly the problem when I was a practitioner was the only way you could really create a career was by becoming a manager. That took you away from working directly with uh, children. Now you can become a senior practitioner and you can actually uh, develop your career by being a specialist practitioner or a consultant social worker. I think that's a major, major step forward and will stop people becoming managers. The challenge there is, is we still need a good, enough good managers as well, but it's a slightly different challenge that we'll have to work through. Okay. And finally, what would be the one tip you would give to somebody going into social work now? What would you say to them is the best thing they can take away from this talk? Well, it's interesting to say that. Uh, I, there's two examples I'd give. There was a, a, a young person that contacted me a fortnight ago who's in a second year of a criminology degree uh, wanting to say, is there any way I can talk to some people about what it's like to work with young people who are offenders? 
and I set up a, an opportunity for them to spend a couple of days with our youth offending team to talk about that. Nice. And uh, another young person who's doing their A-levels, they're doing psychology, sociology and stuff mm-hmm. like that, who was really keen to become a social worker, but had read everything, heard everything, and said, I'm really anxious about it, whether it's the right career choice. So I gave her the opportunity to come and spend a day with social workers, completely unfettered, talking about what it was really like. The really good news was she she emailed me back actually two days <laughs> ago to say, I've not been put off. Um, but so, so I think it's really about talking to people who are really doing the job, about the highs and the lows. You've got to go into it, eyes wide open. It is an incredibly challenging job. It's a stressful job. It's a really difficult job. And you need that balanced perspective before you make those career decisions. Are there any points that stand out, any particular highs or lows, anything that sort of sums up being a social worker for you? Well, I think there's uh, two things to say. One, sometimes the highs aren't always immediate. And uh, so therefore, you don't always get an immediate feedback in terms of what you're doing. But uh, one of those longer term feedbacks, uh, recently I was uh, I was working in Bedfordshire when I was first starting out and working with, in a children's home and uh, I was in the uh, shopping centre in Luton in the Arndale Centre in Luton and I was back there and I hadn't been back there for about 20 years and I was just uh, standing idly you know near one of the uh, uh, shops and someone came up to me and started talking to me as if I knew, had known them all my lives. And it was somebody I worked with sort of 30, 25 years ago who, uh, who was telling me all about their life, how they were married, how they had children. And the, the thing that they really did stay with, stuck with me, which was just gave me a buzz for the next three weeks, was they said, and you had made a major difference to my life. And if it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't be doing what I'd be now. I'd be locked up. And, uh, you know, sometimes you don't want to wait 25 years for that feedback. (laughs) But when it comes, it's fantastic. And I'm sure lots of people that work with families get that. Thanks again to Kim Bromley-Derry, Executive Director of Children and Young People Services at the London Borough of Newham. And thanks to Harriet. Now on to a research-themed jobs chart. We have some fresh meat in the pod. Tim Look from Guardian Jobs, who is here to help Ali reveal the top ten. At 10, research fellowships in climate change for the Institute of Development Studies. It's a research analyst in China for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office at 9. 8 is a director at the Institute of Public Policy and Research. At 7, a diabetes research nurse is needed by Health Jobs UK. While at 6, a Quent are looking for a project executive in market research. In at 5 is a PR officer for Cancer Research UK. And at 4, we've research fellows at Imperial College. A part-time director of research is wanted by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at three. And at two, it's your chance to work for The Guardian, who are looking for two research analysts. But the cream of the crop this week is an HSS journals publisher for SAGE. For more info on those roles and lots, lots more, you can visit guardianjobs.co.uk. So it takes me 45 minutes. It takes Harriet approximately an hour and two minutes. Uh, Speedy producer Kate spends 20 minutes, but it can take Ali a whopping four hours a day. I'm talking about our commute to work. Um, Committed long-distance commuter Ali has penned some thoughts on the highs and lows of living beyond the commuter belt. Whenever you're ready, Ali. Becoming a long-distance commuter was not easy, not least because there are nearly 100 miles between my home and the office. An annual season ticket was among one of the most expensive single purchases of my adult life. Then I had to get used to the impact on my social life of adding a four-hour round trip to the working day. So I was a natural source of advice to a friend who had, like me, landed a fantastic job in the capital. 
He wanted to take the job in London, but without the sacrifice of leaving his home in Lincolnshire. He wanted to follow in my footsteps and join the masses of suited and booted folk who sacrifice hours of freedom for twiddling their thumbs along the East Coast mainline each day. However, he needed convincing first. How had I managed to keep up this gruelling schedule without turning into an ashen-faced zombie? <laughs> I gave him all the details, including prices, train times and the sad fact everyone will be on their second or third pint by the time you're able to join them in the pub after work. <laughs> However, I assured him that it is indeed possible to live a perfectly happy life while spending the equivalent of nearly a whole day in transit each week. That's all fine, he replied, but really? <laughs> As Oliver Berkman pointed out in a recent Guardian column, if my friend and I were living in the stateside, we'd be labelled as extreme commuters by the United States Census. Bergman also pointed out that there are some who seem to relish commuting, whether it is the quiet isolation of the iPod that does it for them, or the gentle transition between work and non-work. Well, I can't say I actively look forward to my commute, it soon just morphed into part of my daily routine. I don't think I'm alone in approaching it this way. Seasoned commuters seem to have developed a communal routine in order to accommodate the chaos of thousands of people descending into London each day. Each morning, little groups of commuters gather poised at the exact spot <laughs> on the platform where the door of their preferred carriage will appear. Once on board, other commuters will make room for them should there be the golden opportunity of a spare seat. This is not the place for bags and coats strewn across spare spaces and a hostile attempt to deter people from requesting that room. In the morning, most passengers will respectfully keep the noise down for those who want to catch up with some much-needed shut-eye. Some have even capitalised on their commute as amusing content for their blogs and Twitter feeds. My favourite is the hilarious app Brighton Train, who tweets overheard snippets of conversations, including, I have demon in me. Would you like a ham sandwich? <laughs> of course, there are a myriad of unavoidable annoyances associated with public transport, People who use the time to file their nails and those who assist on shouting into their mobile phones top my list. However, I do think the downsides are bearable if you're making your way to a job you enjoy. So back to my friend. I think the fact that a dream job awaits him at the end of his journey will make the adjustment to long-distance commuter much easier than it seemed at first. And you never know, he might even find himself enjoying it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, Ali has some dates for your diary. Right, June 22nd, we have roles in local government. And June 23rd, we have I've graduated, what next? Because of the big old England game, we're running this one 12 to 3pm, so put that in your diary. And June 24th, we've got graduate schemes in marketing. And don't forget the Guardian Graduate Fair on the 23rd and 24th of June. That's it for this week. Thanks very much to all our guests, Kim Bromley-Derry, Julian Lindley, Tim Luck from Guardian Jobs, and of course, Ali White and Harriet Minter. I'm Kerry Eustace. Careers Talk was produced by Kate Taylor. Until next week, goodbye.